0: You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at LiveTheMessage.org. Good morning, church. So glad you're all here this morning, January 12th, 2020. We made it, and I'm glad you made it here this morning to our 1045 service. Um, somebody, one of our leaders from our uh, trustee team came up to me during worship and just shared a word. Um, as we were worshiping that, uh, during that song, Break Every Chain, uh, he felt like he, he saw a picture of, um, like, an animal that's been chained up and uh, it's like that chain, I mean, that the animal was programmed. The, the, the animal's big, like an elephant, you know, big enough to break the chain, but it's already been, you know, has the strength to, to break free, but it's been trained, it's been programmed in his mind to, to stay chained to that. And there are some in this place who... Um, you just need to be encouraged in the, the promises of the gospel spoken of your life, that those chains are already broken, they're already paid for, for you to be able to break free. And so maybe it's a, a matter of unbelief. And in the gospels, Jesus says he can help you in your unbelief. And so right now, I just want us to respond to that. If you're here in this place and you're in the midst of it, you're, you're in a battle. You are, uh, it seems like, just day to day. And you just need some hope spoken into your life that those chains that have bound you for a long time, they're broken already in Jesus Christ, and just in a, in a fresh way, you need to receive that. If you all just bow your heads, I want you to receive that. Uh, if, even if it's just one person in this place, or if, if it's a multitude, I just want you to receive that encouragement from the Holy Spirit. Lord, we feel like you, you speak to us in community, we believe that, and, um, and we just receive that word. There are some that have almost, maybe from their environment, maybe from their, their upbringing, they've so been inundated by a script or a narrative over their life that it's hard for them to believe anything else. But Jesus, you speak a better word. And this morning, you're speaking freedom upon them. Uh, addictions and anxiety and depression, um, toxic thoughts, um, they can be a thing of the past because of what you accomplished on the cross and demonstrated through your resurrection the giving of your Holy Spirit. All those things speak a better word over every individual in this place. Nobody's an orphan in here uh, in Jesus Christ. They can come into the family. They can be adopted as sons and daughters. And I just proclaim that over every individual in the house, everyone listening online, in your name, Jesus, amen. Good stuff. Hey, this morning, um, we're starting a new series called Ready to Answer. Um, The beginning of the school year, we really felt like a theme for our church for this school year was we are ready because the gospel inherently equips you for anything that you're gonna face in this life. God doesn't leave you ill-equipped for the trials, the tribulations you're gonna face, the difficulties you're you're gonna face, the relationships you're gonna walk into. The gospel inherently speaks over you, adoption and inheritance and equipping. And, And that's that theme, we are ready. And so in that light, we wanted to um, really lead our church into a few weeks of exploring big questions that I know we all face, that either we ourselves have personally wrestled through, or we've been in conversations with people, friends, and family that truly wrestle with faith, wrestle with their, either their Christian faith or with Christianity in general or with faith in general, the existence of God. And, um, and we want to equip our church to wade into those waters with a level of confidence not to create apologists, you don't need to be the, um, the expert, but to know at the end of the day that there are really good answers to a lot of these big questions, and nor are these questions new questions. These are questions that have been asked for centuries, and I believe over the, over the centuries we've come to really, some really good, um, formidable answers that we want to equip our church in, uh, that We believe you can, you can wade into these waters and explore these questions with a level of confidence knowing that, that there's really good answers. So this morning, we are gonna tackle a big one, but it's a great starting place. It's the question about scripture. Why is it that we believe the Bible is authoritative in our lives? Maybe you've surrendered your life to Christ and you're a follower of Jesus. What comes with that is this, you submitting your life to his authority upon your life. And as Christians, we believe Scripture, the Bible, 66 books of the, of the Bible, are authority in our life. But that's a big claim, to say the Word of God, Scripture, capital S, and then submit your life to that. That's a big deal. And around here, you know, we encourage people to take God at his word. We say that often, which is like this act of simple obedience as a child of God, a son or daughter, just take God at his word. But how can you do that, you know, if, if you don't know if that, that word is credible, if it's trustworthy. We want to we wade into these waters of exploring the question about the authority of Scripture. Why is it that Scripture has authority in our lives, that we'd submit our lives to? I think this is really relevant in our day and age because of the rise of biblical literacy because less and less Scripture is revered as holy, as anything different than any other ancient work. It's kind of put on the pile of other ancient books. Why is it that as Christians, we set it apart as altogether different. And we call it holy, meaning set apart. Why, why is that? And do we have good reason to do that? And then to submit our lives then and say, hey, we're going to try to live our lives to the, to the ethic and to the, um, to the standard of Scripture. And then the reality is, in our Western world, we're, we're really Christianized in terms of our influences. And so there are many that claim Christianity, but i have never really had an encounter with Jesus Christ. So that kind of adds to the muddiness of people's understandings of Scripture and Bible. So many many people misuse Scripture. Many people just whack people upside the head with the Bible without expecting an actual encounter with a person of Jesus Christ. And so all these things add to the the need for us to address this question. Why is Scripture authoritative in our lives? And um, so just imagine you kind of wading into this conversation with somebody, maybe a loved one or... Uh, a t- a teenage kid that you have in your house or a friend or coworker and they ask you that question why why do you hold scripture as authoritative in your life why is that why are you willing to submit your life to a book that's 2000 years old isn't it full of contradictions wasn't it compiled by you know arbitrarily by a group of guys you know in 397 AD um, you know how do we know it wasn't manipulated or um, you know, hijacked for propaganda purposes. Like, how do, how do we know any of that is true? You're going to submit your life to that? Just imagine yourself waiting into that conversation. I know it's a meaty one, and there's so much that we could tackle. In the next 40 minutes, I'm going to attempt to get somewhere and bring you along in this journey of discovering or exploring this question. So before we do that, I want to kind of sparse out two words, or kind of... Um, bring to the surface two words and kind of create a difference between them but also the relationship between them. The words are credibility and authority. Credibility meaning the historical veracity or validity or um, historical trustworthiness of the Bible. The other is the authority of scripture in your life. You're actually gonna submit your life to what it says and with, with all humility in your heart, try to live to the best of your ability to the submission of that word. There's, there's, there's a difference between them, but I believe they're related. And this morning, my hope is for you to see this conversation about credibility, veracity, validity, the truthfulness, trustworthiness of Scripture leads every single person to a crossroads. And the reason I want to bring that to the surface or before you is because I want us to own it. And as you approach this conversation with people, I feel like boldly, confidently, we can bring people to that crossroads. And then at least they can own their decision, because there is a mountain of evidence in terms of the, um, the evidence supporting the validity and the historicity, the veracity of Scripture actually happening, like these accounts, that, and we're going to dive into it as to, to why I can say that. But what that, that conversation about credibility, trustworthiness, and validity does is it leads you to a crossroads to say that if this man really walked on the earth... He really came. He lived perfectly, as Scripture says, and he gave his life on a cross. He really rose from the dead. He really sent his Holy Spirit. What does that mean for my life? And I feel like in our modern age, many people attack the credibility of Scripture or um, they want want to attack Christians for for holding the authority of Scripture because they they don't want to submit their life to another authority. We all want to sit on the thrones of our own heart. We all want to be the kings. We want to be the ones that call, call, call the shots in our life. And so this conversation about credibility and validity leads us to a crossroads, and I just want us all to own it. And I want the people that we have these conversations with, you know, we, we do it respectfully, we do it kindly, but I want them to come to their own crossroads. And we'll read some quotes this morning of a number of non-believers that have come to this crossroads, and at least they're able to be honest with themselves, that the, the, the scriptures historically are accurate, but I can't submit my life to this Christ. It's good for us to be honest. So as I've kind of already alluded, this entire conversation, this entire question centers around one man. His name is Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And so we're going to lead through this. um, We're going to talk through this question or address this question through these concentric circles. I believe it all centers around this one uh, man, in human history, Jesus Christ, in whom, you know, the calendars got reset. I mean, everyone turns back and looks to this Jesus, this one who came. There's so many questions around this man. Who is he? Is he an actual historical man that actually walked the earth? Or is he more folklore, legend, mythology? You know, is he more the invention of, you know, centuries of wanting to kind of create a central figure for a movement? Was he, was he a peasant? Was he a, you know, a political insurrectionist and zealot? Who was this Jesus? And there's all sorts of conversations going on about, about him, and there have been for centuries. But that conversation about who Jesus is leads us to one place, and that's the next circle in these concentric circles. It's the Gospels. But what we know of in Scripture is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you want to ask that question like... Um, with humility and a desire to really know, you would go to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four um, beautiful accounts or biographies of this man who, who came and he, he taught, he did ministry, and these give this account a kind of a multifaceted perspective of what this Jesus of Nazareth was like. But as soon as we dive into the gospels and start exploring the validity of the Gospels, a bunch of questions arise, right? Why these Gospels and not other Gospels? The last 10 years, there's been all sorts of buzz about the other Gospels. This is the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Barnabas, of Peter, of Mary. There's dozens of them, actually. The Gospel of the Hebrews. Why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and not the other Gospels? I mean, did we just kind of scour through them all and kind of cherry-pick the ones that present the Jesus that we want, or, or what is it Why these Gospels? It also presents the questions about credibility. Okay, so are these four accounts even credible? Are they trustworthy? Are they accurate? And then it brings us to the question about those four Gospels. You know, what about the problems within them? There seems to be some some contradictions or or parts where they kind of stumble over one another. Why is that and what do we do with those? So we're going to quickly dive into all those questions. Okay, so why these four Gospels? Why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and not the Gospel of Thomas and, and Barnabas and Peter and Mary? Well, there's a few reasons. One is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all claim to be eyewitness accounts of either apostles or cl- people in close relationship with apostles. So Matthew and John being apostles, Mark and Luke being you know, cl- close confidants or traveling companions with apostles— Whereas the other Gospels, Thomas, Peter, Barnabas, they, they are not written by their namesakes. And that's been proven emphatically by scholars. They're written several centuries after the, the accounts uh, written about. Now, early church leaders, would, would, they, would, they would regard some of the writings within those Gospels as maybe helpful or even accurate uh, pictures of, of the Jesus presented in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. But they're completely set apart as different because they were written centuries afterwards. And lastly was the the time from which they were written. These were written within a few decades of the accounts of Jesus and these were, were written centuries afterwards. So I went as accounts written by apostles or in close relationship with apostles or the time frame by which they were written. So early on, these gospels began to rise to the top as distinctly different. I mean, they were uniquely different, set apart as scripture, and in all the canonical lists from the earliest centuries, these were set apart as scripture emphatically across the board, the consensus. So what about that second question? Are they credible? Okay, so they're, they're different, but how do we know the gospels that you and I are reading are actually what took place in ancient history? How can we be confident that they're trustworthy? We have more confidence in the historical credibility of the gospels than we do in pretty much anything in ancient history. Here's here's the the kind of the short story behind how we came to receive New Testament in English language. Do you know the Bible was not written in, in English? It's good for us all to know it wasn't written in English. It was written the New Testament was written in Greek. These Gospels were written in Greek. And at the onset of this this new movement of Jesus people, there was so much zeal and evangelistic. Excitement, that they, they made scores of these uh, copies of these manuscripts of the Gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the other letters we'll get to those later. the thousands of them. And because of their zeal, they spread them throughout the known world. On top of that, there was pure persecution. God used persecution to sovereignly spread this good news, uh, these evangelistic message of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John throughout the known world. And it just spread it throughout. Now, we, here we are in the 21st century, and archaeology discovers these manuscripts over the ages, and to this day, we have over 5,500 copies of these Greek uh, ancient manuscripts, or 5,500. So this mountain of manuscript evidence showing us, you know, within, you know, 150 A.D. to 200 A.D., you know, that time frame within um, so close to when they were actually written. Now, if you compare that, maybe you're still not convinced, if you compare that to, to many other ancient works, it's almost a 1,000 to 1. If you consider the works of Plato, of Aristotle, of Caesar, no more than 10 manuscripts that we have to, to piece together what they wrote. Whereas on the other side of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have 1,000, over 5,500. This is what John A.T. Robinson said he said the wealth of manuscripts and above all the narrow interval of time between the writing and the earliest extant copies make it by far the best attested text of any ancient writing in the world and both conservative and liberal scholars even un- unbelieving scholars would attest to that statement that the the manuscript evidence is astoundingly massive in compared to other ancient works okay so then what about this third question what about contradictions What about seeming difficult passages within these four accounts? Here is my bit on apparent contradictions. I would encourage you, as you approach Scripture and as other people uh, maybe bring questions to you about Scripture, I would encourage you to approach difficult passages with an air of humility. Because there is no difficult passage that you'll come by in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that others coming before you in the centuries prior have not also encountered. And over the centuries, there have been thousands of believers, men and women, who have, who have wrestled with these passages. And they've come to some really, really good answers. And this applies across the board uh, throughout the 66 books of the Bible. When you approach a difficult passage, an apparent contradiction, I'd encourage you to first um, consider genre. You know, a lot of people have a, have a struggle with Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, some, some do. If you consider genre, there, there's, there are some good explanations for why Moses would have given um, different accounts of the creation story, and he knew what he was writing, so he wouldn't uh, inherently write a contradiction, an impossible scenario. But genre, I believe, gives a really good explanation. Secondly, consider culture. Many difficult passages can be accounted for when you consider culture. Mark and John give an account of the crucifixion timeline. And Mark states that Jesus is being crucified at the same time. John says that Jesus is just appearing before Pilate. How can they both be happening at the same time? Somebody's got to be wrong, right? And we think, that okay, I just got to throw this whole thing out. The whole thing's a farce. But actually, when you consider culture, there's some really good answers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they, they gave time in terms of a Jewish time system where John, who wrote 30 year, 20 or 30 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he wrote from a, a Roman time frame, a time, time standard. And so we actually, when you line those two timelines up, John's timeline lines up perfectly with Mark's. So when you consider culture, there's a, there's a lot of things that, that get answered for. But too often, we, we allow just an initial reading to blind us from what's actually there. Some, some have difficulties with the different accounts in Matthew and Luke of the birth of Jesus. But any married person in the house knows that a married couple may have a little different perspective or different details, different emphases in giving a story, telling a story, am I right? Yeah, the, the, the wife is going to tell about all the, the beauty and the smells and the, the, the frilly details, and the man's going to talk about the, the, the adventure of it, the danger and the, the risk-taking, and and, and honestly, Matthew gives the account of the birth of Jesus, and many scholars believe it's more from Joseph's perspective. So what is it? It's the, the flight to Egypt, and the, the escape from Herod, and it's the, the visit from the wise men. And, and Luke is more from the perspective of Mary, It's the, the, the angelic encounters with the angels and nothing about frilly details and, and, and smells, but, but you get the point. There would be different emphases, and there's nothing in the, the birth accounts that are uh, contradictions of impossibilities. Uh, it's just a matter of emphases. And many of the gospel accounts, uh, especially when it comes to John, I mean, he, he was fully aware of what Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote. And so, I mean, he wouldn't inherently or on purpose contradict them. These were his, um, these were his counterparts in the gospel. Um, here, here's a great example of uh, you know, a difficult passage. Here's the, the account of the crucifixion, um, the, the statement that the, the Roman guards placed at Jesus' cross of his, this was his crime. This is who he is. Matthew says this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Mark says it says the king of the Jews. Luke says this is the king of the Jews. And John says Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Well, only one of them can be right. I mean, right? I mean one of them's wrong, I mean, they're all, three of them have to be wrong. It's multiple choice, mutually exclusive. But that doesn't necessarily have to be true. In reality, as we're, as we're giving accounts from multiple perspectives, each one of them could be picking out different details and giving account of those details. And when you pull them all together, the truest sense of what's actually written at the cross of Jesus could very well be, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Very easily. That accounts for all the details of all four accounts with no you know, uh nothing left out, all details accounted for. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And I believe there's many explanations like that when it comes to the four different perspectives of the Gospels. So you approach, the, you say, who is Jesus? And you approach the Gospels, and you begin to realize that this man really walked the earth. He really did claim to be God. He really did claim to be the way, the truth, and the life. He really did give his life on a cross. He really did rise from the dead. We're gonna talk about the resurrection in a couple weeks. He then sent his Holy Spirit to live with us and this Jesus movement started. What does that mean then for his scripture? That's the next concentric circle. Because you accept the gospels as actually happening, as, as valid, as historically accurate. Well, Jesus himself claimed to, to, adhe, uh, to follow the authority of scripture, the Old Testament scripture, the Hebrew scripture. So what do we do with the, the first 39 books of the Bible? That's the next concentric circle that we're gonna consider. This beautiful compilation of multiple genres, dozens of authors, and centuries of history. How do we know that that Old Testament scripture, is any, the one that we have today, is anything close to what Jesus had? How do we know it's anything close to what was written centuries prior how can we have any confidence at the scripture of the 39 books of the Hebrews uh, Bible, that we can have any sort of, we can place any faith in that, any, any confidence for it to speak relevantly to our lives as an authority in our lives? So I'll, I'll teach you a little something about a tradition called the Masoretic Text or the, the, the Masoretes, these, these scribes who their sole purpose in their life, their, their sole task of these scrolls, these Hebrew scrolls. That was their, their main purpose in their life, and with, um, you know, with a pro- professional vigor and desire, to zeal to, to do the best that they could for the glory of God, they would, with meticulous and painstaking uh, attention to detail, copy every single letter and word from Hebrew scrolls onto the next scroll. But you know, I talked to you about the proliferation of the New Testament as copies, you know, thousands of copies spread across the known world. Hebrew scripture is completely different. It's almost a little frustrating for us. We love, we love mountains, of, mountains of manuscript evidence. Well, the, the Hebrew scripture is completely different because as, as, a, as a, uh, uh, the Hebrew people would use a scroll and it would reach the end of its life, it got worn out, they would destroy it <laughs> after after it was done. They, they'd copy it. They would hand it to the Masoretes. They would, they would copy it meticulously and then they would destroy the old one. And all the, like, all the archaeologists and historians are like cr- cringing, like, no, please. Just preserve it. Put it in the refrigerator somewhere, or you know, do something with it. Preserve it. But they would destroy it. That was that was their tradition. They were putting all their faith on these these guys, these scribes, these, the Masoretes. What would the Masoretes do? How would they how would they know that they're they're confidently copying the scrolls from one to the next? They would count every single verse. After they completed a book, the book of Deuteronomy, they, they would count every single verse. And at the, the, the very beginning of the scroll, they'd annotate the number of verses. They'd make sure it lined up perfectly with the prior scroll. Then they would count to the very middle verse. There can only be one. And they'd make sure it lines up perfectly. And they would annotate that at the top of the scroll Then thirdly, they would count out all the sections. It was broken down into sections. And they'd make sure that lined up perfectly with the other scroll. If any one of those three numbers were off, they'd throw out their weeks of work and they'd start over. It was that meticulous level of attention to detail that guided these these Masoretes to to, um, be able to confidently hand down the scrolls from generation to generation. But for centuries as as Christ's followers, we just kind of had this faith that the Hebrew people knew what they were doing. Like, okay, I hope they got it right. Because I I like I look to the scripture every day and, and I want it to guide my life and I want it to have an authority in my life. I want to know what God is saying. So something really significant happened in 1947, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, what his, you know archaeologists consider the, the greatest archaeological find of the 20th century. In the caves of Qumran, you know, near the border of Jordan in modern Israel, these shepherds were messing around and they threw a rock into a cave and they hit these clay vessels and these vessels broke open. And they realized there were, there were these scrolls in there. They had no idea what they discovered. They were worth millions of dollars and they sold them for pennies on the dollars. And, um, but what they ended up finding were scrolls, mini scrolls in these caves, not just the ones the, the shepherds found. And it became a, a significant archaeological find because what what they found were thirty scrolls that, that held thirty-eight of the thirty-nine books of the Bible from our Hebrew scripture from our the Old Testament. And up until that time, the oldest Masoretic text that we had was from 900 AD. But in 1947, it was almost like we we rewound, we rewound the clock 1,000 years, all the way back to 200 BC to between 60 you know 200 BC to 60 AD. Some of these scrolls dated, dated more than a 1,000 years back. So, I mean, this was just like, this was like the best day ever for, for archaeologists. They were like, we get a glimpse into the, the, the trustworthiness of this cultural uh, tradition, the Masoretes. And they get to look back, so how do they compare? That's like the, that's like the, the burning question in the archaeologists, archaeologist's mind. This is what Miller Burroughs says. He said, it is a matter of wonder that through something like 1,000 years, the text underwent so little alteration. As I said my first article on the scroll, herein lies its chief import- importance, supporting the fidelity of the Masoretic tradition. And the, and the, the number they came to was 99.5% accuracy over 1,000 years that was handed down from generation to generation. So there's great confidence. The Hebrew, the Old Testament scripture that you hold in your hands, obviously translated from Hebrew to English, there, there's, a, there's a credibility to it, a validity, a veracity to it that you can that you can have confidence in. So where do we go from there? What about we're we're still missing 23 books on the New Testament? How do we how do we um, then, in confidence, submit our lives to the rest of Scripture, the other 23 books? Because you know weren't these just kind of Hung on a dartboard and a bunch of guys just kind of threw darts at them, and they're arbitrarily chosen 23 books. Out of all the other writings in the early church, there's all sorts of writings um, running around uh, during the early church. How did we arrive at these 23 books? Early on, it seemed in the church this brewing sense that some of the writings that were um, being sent around were authoritative. They were on a different plane. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. There was this sense that what the apostles were teaching and dictating and and writing and even orally spreading, there was something different about it. There was an air about it that was completely different than other writings. And that was from the the earliest times. Here's Peter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 through 16. This is what he says, "...and count the patience of our Lord as salvation." Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. And as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Here, here Peter, you know, counterpart to Paul, you know, um, fellow worker in, the, in, in ministry and in the gospel, affirms Paul's writing, and Paul writes 13 of these 23 books. He affirms Paul's writing on the same level as Scripture. That these ones, they're, they're, they have a hard time wrestling through some of Paul's writings, but people do that with all of the Scripture. And so it makes sense that some would twist Paul's writings as well, because he places them on the same plane as Scripture. I believe that the story behind the, the compilation of the New Testament as we know it is a beautiful one. The Bible as a whole, 66 books, was written over a period of 1,500 years by more than 40 different authors, three different languages. It's this beautiful mosaic of God's redemptive story, um, him inspiring through the Holy Spirit a number of different individuals to, to bring to us this revelation of his redemptive story. So wouldn't it also make sense that then the compilation of those writings into like an overarching consensus amongst the body of Christ would also come about through kind of succession of uh, inspiring moments in a, in a consensus over time. Well, that's what happened. So, the, the council that happened in 397 AD wasn't the first council. Instead, it was a series of councils. 393, they actually affirmed the same list that they did in 397 AD. And we have canonical lists that go, inspired lists that go all the way back to 150 AD. So, the sense that a group of people felt all this pressure to all of a sudden, like, call some, some books. Scripture and others not, and it all happened in 397 A.D. Is, is false. It's not true. We have lists historically that go back all the way to 150 A.D. There was this sense shortly after they were written, and, and the latest books to be written you know, were the writings of John around 90 A.D. And just a few decades after that, the, the pressing sense amongst the church was some of these writings are completely different. They're on the plane of Scripture. We should define this. And it was through a succession of kind of iterations of consensus and the working out of it amongst the body of Christ, that finally, within a few centuries, they come to this consensus and say, now these these are the 66 books of the Bible. This is what F.F. Bruce says, and if you want to read more about uh, New Testament uh, reliability, this is a great book from F.F. Bruce. It's become a classic, but it says, one thing must be emphatically stated, the New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in a canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognizing their innate worth and generally apostolic authority, direct or indirect. So it wasn't all of a sudden just on the spot, but but instead it was over time, a succession of of events that led to this place of consensus. And I think it's a beautiful picture of how the body of Christ works together together and God speaks to his people, and it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit, and that is our history as the Church of Jesus Christ. So there is a really good level of confidence that you can have as you open up scripture that this is God's breathe, God, God breathed authority in your life, that it can be if you allow it to be. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says this: that all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, in training in righteousness. That's the role of scripture in your life. Meant to be an authority over anything that you're facing. It's meant to be relevant to what you're facing, not to be a compartment of your life that you maybe you just hear about on Sunday mornings. But it's meant to be an authority spoken into your life for training and righteousness. So this is where our kind of our exploration of this question has led. Will we allow it to be an authority in our lives? Jesus is where it started, and now it's Jesus is where it ends. This exploration of this question of the authority of Scripture. If Jesus really did come, and he is who he says he is, then am I going to trust him with my life? And that's that crossroads that I was talking about at the very, very beginning. Like that question, burning question about credibility and uh, historicity of Scripture leads us to a crossroads, and I just want every single person to own it. And the people that we have conversations about scripture, I want, to, I want people to own it and be at that crossroads and say, okay, it really did happen, but I don't want to submit my life to it. I'd much rather have people own that decision than believe a lie that it never actually happened. This is, this is what two unbelieving scholars say to us. Paul, this is Paula Fredrickson. The single most solid fact about Jesus' life is His death. So Jesus really did. He wasn't mythology. He's not a legend. This person, who's not a follower of Jesus, she's an atheist. She says this event really happened. He was executed by the Roman prefect Pilate on or around Passover in the manner Rome preserved particularly for political insurrectionists, namely crucifixion. This is a John Dominic Crossan, who's you know a really uh, popular, evocative critic of Christianity. He said there is not the slightest doubt about the fact of Jesus' crucifixion or Pontius Pilate that he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. But what I appreciate about these critics is that they are willing to claim that it actually happened, but they're honest about their decision to not want to submit their life to it. And I would rather have you have the truth about what actually happened and then come to that crossroads for yourself with the person of Jesus Christ and then own your decision. And that goes for the people that you have these conversations with as well. This is how I want to end. I'm going to have the worship team come forward. We're going to sing that, that song, He is Faithful, because if there's anything that you know, we, can, we can leave this morning with is the sense that God is so faithful to reveal himself to us. He's given us a perfect word that's been revealed to us over millennia, and it's been preserved for us so we can know him. He's so faithful, and we're going to declare that. But I also believe this conversation about the authority of scripture can come to bear on each and every one of your lives this morning. Because I know you're all facing situations and issues and uh, trials. And I want to give you an opportunity to submit those things to the authority of Jesus. To submit those things to the authority of God's word in your life. I believe he wants to speak to you this week. He wants to take you to a place where scripture is relevant. It's meant to be an authority over every sphere, every aspect of your life. It's not meant to be just a uh, theoretical religious book. It's meant to be applied to your life. And that's what that's what's meant by authority. It's meant to be the voice of, of uh, the grid to see the world, the framework to see the world, and to, uh, how we interact with other people, how we face the issues that we face. So if you'd all bow your, bow your heads and close your eyes in this place. If you're here this morning and you have something that you know you need to submit to the authority of Jesus, to declare that he is trustworthy, that he is able. And in a fresh way, you want his word to, to speak truth over that situation. You want to, in a fresh way, have the faith to believe that he has something to say about it. Maybe it's a physical issue you're facing. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's a relationship issue. Maybe your marriage is on the rocks. Maybe, maybe it's an issue you've been dealing with forever, a chronic issue. If that's you in this place and you want to submit that to Jesus, would you just raise your hand? Yeah, hands all over the place. I think we're all facing something, and this is something I do in my own life. As I stress out about things, as I get overwhelmed by things, you have to place it before Him. You have to be willing to lay it down to Him, before Him, and say, "You are trustworthy, God. You are the authority over this thing, over this issue." So, right now, God, you see the hands raised, and Lord, they are a declaration of faith in this place. At these situations that we face, the difficulties that we face. We trust you with them, God. We know that you have a better way. You have a way out. You have a way of escape. You have, a, you have provision. So we, we submit these things to your authority in our lives. In your mighty name, Jesus. I'm believing this week. And God's going to speak to you through his word, as he does, relevantly, regarding those issues. Secondly, with yeah, every head... Bowed and every eye closed in this place. If, if you're here in this place and you need to start a relationship with Jesus, you know you're, you're not right with God. I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. Maybe you've prayed prayers in the past, but you just know this morning you've walked in here and you need to start a relationship with God. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand not because I'm going to call you out or embarrass you. I just want to know who I'm praying for. If that's you in this place and you'd say, yeah, I want to surrender my life to Christ. Amen. Awesome. Anybody else? Just raise your hand, so I know who I'm praying for. Awesome. So if you raised your hand, or even if you didn't, and this is this is sincerely the the prayer of your heart, pray a prayer like this, Lord Jesus. This morning I come to the end of myself. No more running. No more trying to clean myself up. I know there's nothing I can do to uh, fix my sin issue. So this morning I come to you and I surrender my life. You are Savior. You are Lord. You are master from this day forward. No turning back. I thank you for the new life that I have in you. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that comes to live inside of me. I thank you, Jesus, for this new work in your name. Amen. Let's give those that, that prayed that prayer a chance. This has been the Life Point Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at LiveTheMessage.org.